the Scoop. I'm Dinah Jansen. The 2022 Ontario general election will be held on June 2nd to elect members of the provincial parliament to serve among the 124 seats in the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. In the meantime, candidates across the province have begun campaigning in their respective ridings for their respective parties, and they're doing so in a variety of ways and across numerous platforms. With us today to chat about political campaign communications and their impact on the electorate, are Dr. Jonathan Rose and PhD candidate Tim Abre of political studies here at Queen's University. Welcome both of you, Jonathan and Tim. Thanks for having Thanks for having us. Amazing that you're both here. We really do appreciate your time. Okay, so let's dive in, gentlemen. Can we learn from you first about really the mechanics and trends in political advertising? In short, what kinds of campaign ads are used in liberal democratic elections, including right here in Canada. Jonathan, can you start us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a it's a really broad question uh, because the variety and scope of political ads you see around the world are really dependent on a number of things. Uh, they're dependent on the political culture in which the advertisements operate. They're dependent on the regulatory regime. So the kind of government apparatus that is set up uh, to limit or to restrict political advertising. Uh, They're dependent on the party structure. So whether it is a multi-party political system or as in the United States, a two-party political system. And then finally, I think they're, they're dependent on sort of the norms and expectations of voters. What are uh, how are voters traditionally being uh, engaged? Um, and I guess also, I mean, it, it goes without saying that it's dependent on the salient issues uh, in the country. So uh, goes without saying that the kinds of ads you're going to see in a UK election around just before Brexit would be very different in an Israeli election, uh, which would be different in an American or Canadian election. So. Uh, it's a long-winded answer because the variety is broad and the scope is quite wide. Um, but what is common is that virtually all liberal democracies use uh, political advertising uh, in some way. And it, it actually might be useful to have a discussion of what we mean by that. Tim, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Jonathan has absolutely covered the bases with it. I think the one thing I would throw in that all jurisdictions have in common is that advertising is uh, is pretty much universally aimed at voter mobilization. Uh, that there's a there's there's a distinction made, particularly in in the study of this stuff, um, but it's a strong distinction made by strategists as well, which is that there is a general perception that somehow elections are about persuading people to vote in a particular way. But strategists understand that that's a tall order in such a short period of time. Um, And their main focus really is about mobilization. It's about Mm -hmm. getting people who are likely to vote for your party to get up and do it. Uh, And so ads are a critical component of activating certain issues, uh, as Jonathan pointed out, speaking to people in particular ways that are going to appeal to them, but appeal to them to motivate them to get out and actually cast a ballot. So that's that's a very large part of what ads are trying to do. Yeah, and it's a good point because underlying that is an assumption that is really important to kind of make uh, apparent, and that is that Um, voters traditionally and historically across liberal democracies don't turn out to vote. So there needs to be a motivation to get them to to the ballot box and advertising does that. 
All right. And now I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the actual strategy here and and how it motivates the particular types of ads that we actually see, whether on television, uh, whether in newspaper or magazine spreads, and certainly across social media. Um, how how do the strategies really inform the specific types of ads? And, and then we can dive into as well what types of ads we actually are encountering. Uh, Tim, can we start with you? Yeah, sure. I think we could probably go uh, with a similar answer to the one Jonathan gave in the first place, but um, I'll try and try a different tact on this. I, the strategies that parties take are dependent on a, a lot of things, and a lot of them are simply um, uh common strategic wisdom rules of thumb. So there is one particular rule of thumb that is uh, pretty common in Western democracies and has been for the last several decades, but I, I believe is shifting. And that's the rule of thumb that governments aren't defeated, governments defeat themselves. And uh, that has driven a lot of the decision-making and particularly over the last three or four decades. Uh, around the kinds of ads that people lead with going into an election. And I, I know you're going to have a look at some of these ads later, but a good example of this, in my view, um, that I believe it's underpinning the NDP strategy this time around, is the early ads coming out of Andrea Horvath. Because you see them trying to position her, trying to get people to understand who she is, but there's not a lot of really aggressive taking down of the government. There's a, they're, they're, they're dancing around it a little bit. And I think that a lot of that kind of soft entry into a campaign has to do with the belief that you don't get in the way when your opponents are making mistakes. And I, I think the NDP senses that um, there's a lot of discontent in Ontario right now, and they're hoping that that discontent will be enough to carry them over the top. I don't, I don't actually agree with that perspective, but I think it's, it's difficult to deny that it's present uh, in the decision-making structure right now. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing that they do is they offer up something that people feel like they are missing. Uh, so you'll see that in Mike Schreiner's ads, for example, that Mike Schreiner is offering up very straightforward ads about leadership. Like his, his, the one I think that's, uh, that's featured on their website at the moment is about, we have the leadership, we will lead. Um, if you dig a little deeper into the site, they go into all the various issues that they're going to lead on. You know, we're, we have a, a clear plan for housing. We have a clear plan for climate change, those sorts of things. Um, so it really depends on, on how much they think uh, the electorate is listening to them, to them. It really depends on how, what sorts of issues, again, that the electorate uh, is concerned about. And it depends on how much they think that the current government is in jeopardy. All of those things are going to dictate the kinds of strategy that parties take. Okay, so here's a good segue, I suppose, to listen to a couple of the uh, uh, political campaign ads uh, from uh, the NDP as well as the Green Party. Uh, so we'll play a couple of these segments and then we'll uh, get some more comments from both of you on what your thoughts are uh, in terms of strategy behind these ads. My dad was an auto worker. Mom cleaned schools that night. I learned about hard work from them. They taught me when something's broken, we roll up our sleeves and fix it. It's why I've fought for workers, for families ever since. I'll work to fix healthcare instead of cutting it, fix seniors care instead of neglecting it, and bring down the costs families face every day. I'm Andrea Horvath. I'm running for Premier to work for you. 
We'll jump right into the ad for Mike Schreiner as well. We're ready to deliver the Ontario you want, and we have the leaders to deliver on that. We have the leadership we need, but we need to work together to get it done. And so I want to know, are you ready to join me? Okay, so comments. Uh, Jonathan, I'd love to hear from you. Well, you know, I was um, struck by how the ads you, um, you, you broadcast were ones that are, are audiovisual, and your listeners are simply listening to them. And I was struck by how the medium is both audio and visual, and you miss a pretty large part of the meaning and the message of the ad just listening to it on radio. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, in both those ads, uh, ads are always about choice and selection of images juxtaposed with music, which, which your listeners would have heard, um, and words. Um, and those choice of images are actually really important. So in both those ads, we heard, we saw um, people of particular demographics, which the parties are after. Uh, we heard, um, we saw rather certain visual cues and jump cuts that draw your attention to something that create a kind of excitement uh, for the party. And I'm reminded that some of that is lost on ads that are broadcast just uh, on radio, unless they're of course the radio ads, in which case they're dedicated for that purpose. But what did I think mm -hmm. of them? I mean, to follow up on Tim's point earlier, um, they are really about trying to introduce their respective leaders to the public. Their leaders are not well known. Uh, Mike Schreiner, of course, uh, used the language of a cause, uh, echoing the Green Party's roots of a social movement. Uh, and Andrea Horvath um, sort of gave a narrative of who she was. Uh, she's not known and people want to know a little bit about who she is. The other thing that I think is interesting that as political scientists, you know, Tim and I can talk about is that, is the way in which if you were removed from this election, you'd be hard pressed to know the political ideology of either of those two candidates or parties. So they're both kind of in the mushy middle and that's because our political system is called a, relies on a brokerage parties, which sort of appeal to the mushy middle. And you will see most of the ads generally uh, safely ensconced in that middle. Tim, anything to add on that? Yeah, I think that's bang on. Uh, and I think something that's interesting, and, and Jonathan touched on this with talking about how ads are a combination of visuals uh, and audio. And I think that something that's interesting and strong, particularly in the green ad is obviously the greens have an issue with, they have one MPP. Uh, he's the only MPP who has ever been elected. There's a bit of a credibility gap issue there. And I think they're very clever that if you looked at that ad, you noticed that most of the time he's in a crowd, right? And even the audio is, is audio of a crowd. It's an audio of a busy room, people cheering, people talking. It creates a sense of community. And I think that that is a, is a clever piece of work on, on the part of the advertisers who understand that for people to cue into the idea that they can join a movement, they need to not be walking into an empty room. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that's a really clever way of getting over this. On the weak side of things, I thought, particularly with that ad, um, their call to action isn't audible. Their call to action is right at the end, and it's a very literal call to action. It's, it literally says, take action. 
across the middle of the bottom of the screen and sort of invites people to click to go to the website and see what the issues are. But they don't say anything about that verbally. Um, and that's, that's a challenge because we do know from extensive research that audio cues are far more powerful than the visual cues. Um, they tend to access people's emotions more directly. I mean, images are important. They're, don't get me wrong, they're critically important. But audio is surprisingly important to accessing people's emotion. And emotion is incredibly important if what you're trying to do is engage people in political action. Okay, and with that, I'd like to uh, drop back into a couple of other political uh, campaign ads, uh, this time from uh, the Liberal Party as well as the Progressive Conservative Party. So let's have a listen to see uh, what kinds of messaging uh, we're experiencing here. What did you do at school today? I don't know. Nothing? You did nothing at school? I don't know that I believe that. Two kids, two dogs, two very busy careers, like many other households. <laughs> what do you call a fish with no eye? A fish. <laughs> <laughs> They're both really, really smart. For the most part, they get along really well with one another, which is nice to see. I just spit out my <laughs> Yeah, we like to laugh. We like to have a good time, especially after the last two years. It's stressful for everybody. I think so much in life is about showing up, putting the effort in and making sure that you are working hard. What my grandparents did for my parents, what my parents have done for me and my sister and brothers, what my wife and I are doing for our daughters. I really do believe that a provincial government has to provide that circle of support, that network of support. And that's what Ontario Liberals are determined to do. So that was an ad campaign for Stephen Del Duca. And now I'm just going to jump into the Ontario PC ad uh, on the front page of their website. Remember life under Kathleen Wynne? Stephen Del Duca wants to take us back. He was Wynne's right-hand man when they sent your hydro bill skyrocketing. Sold Hydro One, all while liberal insiders got rich. He sat in cabinet while good-paying jobs fled the province, remained idle while creating only 611 new long-term care beds, leaving our most vulnerable unprepared for the pandemic. Ontario crumbled under Kathleen Wynne and Stephen Del Duca. Let's not go back. Authorized by the CFO for the Ontario PC Party. Remember. Okay, so with there, those are two radically different sounding ads with uh, some um, very, very divergent messaging in there. Uh, Tim, can we start with you? What are your thoughts on the comparisons in the messaging between these two ads and their and their campaign strategies behind them? Yeah, with this, you're right in my bailiwick because my uh, my research project focuses on attack ads. Uh, and the effect of attack ads on the way in which people uh, make subsequent decisions after they've been exposed to them. Um, I think what's interesting about this is that our immediate temptation is exactly what you did, which is to say these are radically different. Um, what I would suggest is they are exactly the same thing. It's hmm. just that they come from different emotional valences. So what both of these ads are doing is attempting to describe Stephen Del Duca for uh, for voters, because he is largely an unknown quantity. Most people would not be able to name the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, let alone identify him in a lineup. Um, and particularly with his makeover, he's had a makeover like many leaders do uh, in the course of, of a buildup to a highly visible campaign. Mm -hmm. But what both of these ads are trying to do is paint a picture of who this person is. Uh, and this is one of the biggest dangers of entering a, um, a very controversial election campaign as an unknown, 
because essentially what you are is a, is a large white canvas. Uh, and it leaves you open to being painted all over by your opponents or anybody else who wishes to define you or comment on you. And so the liberals know this. Uh, and in, you know, straightforward strategy 101, they're doing the right thing, which is to get out there and define their leader for people before someone else tries to define him for them. Uh, and so what you've got is competing visions of the same guy. Uh, and the attack ad is, uh, I'd have to say, they're flirting with something I think that is incredibly dangerous, uh, actually. Uh, and there's a couple of those in this election cycle, which I think is interesting. There's a bit of a throwback in this ad to a very controversial, famous 1993 ad that uh, physically mocked Jean Chrétien. Uh, and it, again, it was the conservatives mocking Chrétien uh, because of a... a a, um, an inability paralysis. of him to be able to move once. Yes, exactly. And facial paralysis. And it was that way from birth. Uh, and the conservatives uh, went right at it and said, you know, is this a guy you want leading us on the world stage? This is not obviously that direct, but there is no question in this. They are trying to play on the fact that uh, Stephen Del Duca's strength is not in the animation of his face. He is not a guy who uh, shows a lot of emotion. He's not dramatic. Uh, he doesn't wave with his hands like I do when he talks. He's a very even, everything comes out of his mouth at the same tone. He's quite expressionless a lot of the time. And they're trying to paint that as disinterested, as checked out. Like you saw, they used the loading bar at the bottom of the screen while they were showing him initially while he's looking sort of disinterested and sipping on water. They're trying to paint the impression that this guy is not passionate, not interested in you. He's interested in power. He's interested in just, you know, same old, same old. I think it's clever. Um, but uh, as my own research shows, these things are incredibly dangerous uh, and they can flip back on you. Uh, I've got some pretty good data that shows that people really, quite honestly, hate attack ads. Uh, and they hold the carrier of the message responsible for their discomfort. And I think that, uh, that parties would be well advised to be careful about this kind of tool, particularly if what they're trying to do is paint a good impression of themselves. It may, in fact, end up uh, boomeranging and hurting them. Mm -hmm. Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, Tim's observations are great. I, I completely uh, agree. Um, and in fact, my notes say blank canvas that uh, it's really an attempt to fill in the blank canvas for uh, Del Duca on his, um, you know, Del Duca does dad jokes kind of <laughs> ad. I mean, it's <laughs> quite dad a, joke oh, man. Yeah, try to <laughs> be innocuous and reassuring. <laughs> Um, and I also uh, hadn't thought of it, Tim, but I think you're absolutely right that it does harken back to the 93 uh, so-called facial paralysis ad. Now, interestingly enough, um, the conservatives ran that ad against Jean Chrétien because they're at the lowest point ever. Uh, and they believe this was one way to get attention in the media. Uh, and, you know, talking to um, uh, people like Hugh Siegel, he said, we knew it was dangerous, but we knew it was going to get coverage. And this is something that three of us haven't talked about. And that is the effect of advertising is as much on this kind of thing, the reporting of the ads and the stories around the ads as they are about the ads themselves. So there's something called uh, paid media, which is what the parties pay to put the ads, but there's earned media, which is the discussion or the buzz that is generated by media or people sharing or liking or retweeting or discussing. We're getting it right now. We're doing it right now. 
And this is really the value of political ads. It's sort of, I would argue that it's sort of a, a beginning step for the conversation. It's not the end. Now, one of the things that your listeners wouldn't know hearing that uh, let's not go back uh, PC ad is that the ad was, as, as, as Tim alluded to, was almost entirely of Del Duca's face. Now, um, uh, Del Duca's not known, as we've talked about. This gets him known. So you think about the environment in which you absorb and consume ads. It's the TV's on in the background. You're doing stuff, you're cooking and so forth. You're seeing that image. And in fact, it may backfire because it reassures the the voter about who this person is and it reduces that liability. The liability is no one knows who this guy is. Well, for 30 seconds, you're showing his face and showing who he is. And that might backfire. I just wanted to leap in to add something to that though. I agree completely with that, but to try and shed a little light on what the backroom folks might be thinking at this moment is that they are thinking that uh, the provincial liberals are getting a bump on the federal liberals' popularity in Ontario, the contrast effect between the federal liberals versus the provincial liberals, and the fact that Stephen Del Duca isn't known is a bit worrying to the NDP and to the the progressive conservatives particularly because he's not being defined on his own terms. He's just being uh, being seen under the big tent of liberalism. And I think that their belief is that if they remind people of what the Ontario Liberals are and that they're distinct from the federal Liberals and that there are different people involved and that there's a history involved here, that it will somehow you know, shock people back into, oh yeah, I remember the Ontario Liberals. They've been off the radar for a few years because they were reduced to just a few seats in the House. Um, and oh yeah, I'm not sure how I felt about them. I think that's their intent. But I agree with Jonathan that I think that the the big error here, and I do agree it's an error, uh, is that they are giving him airtime. And the NDP is doing exactly the same thing. The NDP has attempted to introduce people. And in fact, Mm -hmm. Andrea Horvath said explicitly that she felt it was important to introduce people to Stephen Del Duca because he's unknown. That's an interesting frame of mind to be in uh, heading into an election campaign. I think it reflects a certain degree of uncertainty among the parties. They're very worried about the unknown factor, and they would just rather all the chips were on the table. Hmm. Hmm. Now, uh, we've touched on it a few times through the course of our conversation, gentlemen. I'd like to hear a little bit more about voter responses and 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 what motivates them to take particular actions. So, for example, I don't know, like attack ads aren't particularly attractive to me as a voter, for example, because I'm just hearing one party uh, make some pretty explicit and bold, possibly truthful claims about this or that other opponent. But they're not actually talking about uh, their own platform or their own issues. And I find that to be rather a turnoff. And it certainly doesn't uh, compel me to vote for that particular individual or that particular party, but all parties seem to do this. So uh, what is what really motivates the voter response and call to action? So the common wisdom, if I can just leap in, the common wisdom on this is, and I think that it's held up by practice to some degree, mm-hmm. is that uh, by doing this, you undermine people's estimation of your opponents. You know, that no matter whether they want it or not, you're, you're lowering them in their view. 
and creating a bit more of a level playing field, creating vulnerabilities that you can exploit, vulnerabilities you can talk about on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. There's a flip side to this too, and it's been an an area of hot active debate for a good uh, three and a half decades now, which is the idea that attack ads also have a tendency just to discourage people, that uh, they see them, they're not impressed, it makes them cynical about the process generally, it's called the demobilization effect, Mm -hmm. and it causes them to not wish to go and vote at all. Like they're just like to heck with all of them. I'm not participating in this. I'm just going to stay home. And there are parties who do actively engage in suppression tactics because their traditional tranche of the electorate is smaller than the traditional tranche of the other parties. And by reducing the turnout, they hope that their active, fervent supporters will turn up in great numbers and everybody else will stay home out of discouragement. This is, an, this is a real part of electoral strategy these days, and particularly in the age of social media, where you're able to target messages directly at individuals at very small micro markets instead of broadcasting. This would be a very dangerous strategy in an era where all you had was TV and newspapers. But in an era where you can reach people directly with very, very, very tailored issues and concerns, um, it's a little less risky because you can create situations where where you're building affinity with someone over something that you're both angry about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that's a that's a that's a lot of what's behind these sorts of ads. But again, my own research is, is showing pretty clearly that your reaction um, is not only the explicit reaction a lot of people have, but it actually influences their their evaluations afterwards unbeknownst to them. Okay. It just makes them unhappy with all of it. Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, not, uh, I don't have much to add to that. Timmy's just spent several years thinking about this very question, so I can't add to that. Uh, except to, you know, just reinforce the point about micro-targeting. And the ads that you've um, shown or, or, or broadcast are... Uh, ones that are on the party's website, and therefore they're not particularly broad. So it's very difficult to see, to read the tea leaves with those ads because mm-hmm. they're not directed to particular voters. Uh, I mean, one of the things that is interesting about the ones you broadcast is none of them really are policy dense, right? So they don't really talk about issues. All of them talk about the characteristics of the leader. So that should say something about what we voters think that parties want us to think about, if you got that. Yeah. So um, it's really around trying to understand what do you think parties want us to get out of their party? And judging from the three or the the several you broadcast, it's it's not about specific policies. It's about character. Yeah. And I I agree with that completely. But I want to throw something in is this this idea that um, something we miss quite a bit. I mean, fairness is fundamental to any discussion about what's right and wrong, right? We automatically go to places of fairness. Uh, And political strategists know this, and very often the first volleys of ads will be about issues of fairness. And if you look at all of these ads, they're they're all talking about the fair shake in some way, shape or form. There's another ad that you haven't played that I think really just gets at this explicitly, which is one by the NDP called Ping Pong. Uh, And it's a table with um, a person in a blue tie at one side and a person in a red tie at the other side. And they're just lacklusterly hitting a single ping pong ball back and forth to each other. And it's narrated by Andrea Horvath. And the end of it is like, we've had enough of this boring game. And then the the table is showered with hundreds of bright orange ping pong balls. Um, And she comes onto the screen and says, and now it's your turn to play. 
Uh, and I think that, that that's an issue of fairness, right? We've been watching this boring game, now we get to participate. Um, the other kind of approach that's very similar to this is in the, the PC's main ads. So you, you showed the one that they're highlighting right now, and I think it's because they see that Teltuk mm -hmm. is getting subtraction. Um, but their main ads are, I, I've said it elsewhere before, they are right out of a Nickelback video. They are this pounding music, uh, thump, thump, let's, and the campaign slogan is get it done. And again, I've said before, they might as well just call it get her done. You know, it's get her done and it's pounding music and it's barbecues and it's beer and it's, you know, but what's interesting is even in those ads, they're engaging in this positive rah, rah, cheerlead, let's get to the polls and keep the province the way it is kind of advertising. They're also attacking at the same time, which is a very unusual thing. And I think it's something to look at that they're 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 putting attack elements and these raw 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 go things together, um, and while it's fun to look at, I would sound a note of caution that I think we need to be really cautious about this development. That it is it is turning not that it hasn't always been, but it is just explicitly turning the electoral contest into a sporting match. It's a my team's going to kick your team's ass kind of approach to things. And um, as Jonathan pointed out, don't see a lot of issues. You don't see a lot of substance. There's not a lot of policy here. It's just my team's better than yours. Let's go get it done. Uh, and I think that that's something that people should be paying attention to and possibly asking questions of the people who show up at their doors. It's interesting that advertisements, uh, political advertisements in Canada are not regulated by Advertising Standards Council. So if you are you know, uh, trying to sell soap, you can't lie about the soap product. And there is a recourse, a professional body that says, um, Pamalov, you can't lie about the soap uh, claim you're making. But there's no such claim for political ads. So we have really thrown in the towel on the veracity of claims made in the ads. It's as if we don't expect them to be truthful and there's no ability to hold them to account using the very standards that uh, applies to all other advertisers. And I think that creates an enormous amount of confusion. And that, and Tim's, again, this is Tim's research area, but that also contributes to the erosion of cynicism and the erosion of democratic participation. Yeah, 100%. That, that exact dilemma is what led to my research project was this business about the, the advertising standards code. Um, and it, it, it not only doesn't mention political advertising, it explicitly exempts it. So we've talked a little bit about, uh, or talked quite a lot rather, about the uh, messaging and the motivations behind it. What, as as uh, experts who have been studying <laughs> studying uh, these kinds of uh, messages for years now, what do you anticipate uh, the parties will be doing to mobilize? issues into their ads. For example, housing is a huge issue across the country, let alone right here in this province and in their very own community. But also, uh, of course, the, the big, big question of pandemic and climbing out of it and rebuilding the province and rebuilding the economy. What do you anticipate the parties are going to do to actually start addressing some of the issues that really do have an impact on uh, everyday people? Well, I think this is classic, to be honest, and particularly today, this is classic. Um, this is a standoff, and it's a typical standoff at the beginning of a campaign. It's kind of who blinks first. We're in a shootout. Everybody's got their fingers twitching and ready to go. 
but they don't want to be first. They don't want to be the one who goes first because that, you know, you might make a mistake. Um, and I think that we're waiting for that, but I think it's kind of unavoidable. I think this campaign is going to be filled with animosity. And I think the main campaign theme of this campaign is going to be animosity. Uh, and they're going to great, go to great creative lengths um, to show how um, their party is on your side, the other party isn't, um, they have ignored you, we won't, you know, those sorts of very strong appeals to people's very basic sense of security. I'm not sure we're going to get ever into detailed housing policy analysis. And, and the reason that I get at that, the reason I believe that is that we have, and you alluded to it, the biggest possible imaginable uh, public debate, discussion, urgent issue. We've got a global pandemic and nobody's mentioned it. <laughs> nobody's said a word about it yet. Yeah, and it's because exactly. they don't want to be seen to be taking the wrong stance and, and potentially carving out a section of the electorate that might vote for them. And the, 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 the pandemic has been so divisive in so many ways, understandably. I mean, it's a, it is an existential issue. And so of course it's gonna be divisive, but this is to me is reflective of the, the paucity of leadership we have these days is that leaders aren't leading anymore. Uh, and I don't know, Jonathan won't remember, but when I first came back to grad school after 20 years off working in this area, um, you have to write a, an essay that explains, you know, why you're motivated to come back to grad school. And mine was entirely about this issue. It was about the problem of polls and leaders following, following polls. And what I wanted to do was come back and study the effects of people leading. So I just did scare quotes leading in that way. Um, because it's not leadership. It just absolutely isn't leadership. It is marketing. It is product marketing. It is trying to capture a particular portion of a, of a market uh, and succeed at just simply winning in that market. And I don't think that that's going to work. And we're getting a really clear demonstration of how it doesn't work with the pandemic, that people are trying to lead by polls instead of leading through evidence and then driving solutions through leadership and um, leading by example. And we're not seeing a lot of that. And I, so I don't have hopes that this election is gonna be full of leadership on the details of specific policies because we have no evidence to suggest that that will be the case based on the behavior over the last two years. Mm -hmm. And in fact, advertising is a bit of a blunt instrument to get into detailed policy. So really that's the other issue is that you're focusing here and many people are talking about political ads but it may not be the right vehicle to engage the electorate on questions of policy substance. So um, uh, I agree with what was just said that um, we're seeing a real tentative approach to the campaign, judging from the ads we've just seen. No one wants to take a leap of faith. Uh, advertisements, it's important to remember, do two things. They, they, they sort of prime the viewer or, or, or listener on what's important. So think about the ads we've just heard. Um, Stephen Del Duca is a good family man. Uh, Andrea Horvath comes from you know, solid working class roots. So these are attributes of the individual that they're hoping will rub off on the voter. So that's priming. But the other thing is agenda setting. And as the campaign evolves, I think we'll see more about, and the policies are, are unveiled, we'll see more about specific policies and ads, and then we may see some contrast ads. Um, but 
I mean, I was reluctant to say, what are we expecting? Because the other thing ads do is they're reactive and they're reactive to what happens on the campaign itself. So it's difficult for us to predict because we can't predict what'll happen in the campaign. Mm -hmm. Campaigns actually have an impact on voter uh, engagement. Depend, we don't know what's going to happen for now, uh, in the next four weeks. And um, advertisements often pick up on that. Hmm. All right. I'm, I'm sort of interested to know, too, from uh, both of you gentlemen, without, you know, diving in specifically to your own political leanings, um, how do you sort of cut through the chaff when you have all of these various messages that aren't really telling you anything informative? Uh, Jonathan. It's a bit like drinking from a fire hose, isn't it? I mean, you've got all of these sources and all of these messages, and it's really difficult for voters to figure it out. And I, I think the solution I have is a simple one. It requires time. And, you know, uh, it's a very low-tech solution, but to go to an all-candidates meeting and sit and listen to the candidates in, the, in your electoral district. Uh, failing that, um, seek out um, the... the, the um, party platform, which is online for all of the parties, and see if they align with what you think is important as a voter. Okay, great advice. Tim? Yeah, 100%. I agree. Low tech is best. Uh, elections are about people. What we're doing when we vote is we are deciding which person we want to hand over a small piece of our personal sovereignty to. Uh, so it's a really important, critical decision. Uh, so you shouldn't be voting for people you don't have some sense of. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so I couldn't agree more that it's about personal contact and discussion. Uh, the more you can talk to friends, talk to family, read everything you can, watch everything you can, go to candidates' debates, actually speak to the people who come to the door campaigning, um, ask them questions, uh, see how they answer you, see what they're reluctant to answer, those sorts of things. I think it's, it's got to be a, a multi-front effort. Uh, and the worst thing you can possibly do is simply digest slogans um, mm -hmm. and use them as weapons to bludgeon your friends and family with. That, you, that, that if the leaders are refusing to have a substantive policy debate, um, we should, at a bare minimum, be doing that and then asking good, solid questions about the things that actually matter to us, rather than assuming that because they also like beer and barbecues, that we, uh, they're going to be great. You know, it's it just, you know, who doesn't? Uh, it's going to be fine, right? If I just vote for someone who looks like they're having a good time. It's understandable. It's very human uh, to want to have those good feels and to feel like someone's looking out for you. But these are really serious issues. And I can't emphasize enough, you know, that people often, I think, forget that when they vote for someone, they are literally handing over a small piece of their personal autonomy to someone to make rules about how you're going to live and the rules you're going to follow and the kind of life you're going to get to lead. And we are seeing that so clearly uh, right now, particularly during the pandemic, but we only have to cast a glance to the South to see how critical it is, uh, you know, who you elect. Who you elect matters a lot. So choose wisely. Sage advice as well. Thank you so much. Anything else to add, gentlemen, before we wrap up? Nope. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both, folks. We have been chatting with Dr. Jonathan Rose and PhD candidate Tim Abray of the Department of Political Studies here at Queen's University, all about election campaign ads and their impact and their motivations and the strategies behind them. Thank you both very much for giving us so much of your valuable time and incredible insights today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.